Well, good morning. I am certainly thankful to be able to continue our study in 1 John this morning. If you're able, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Today we're actually going to be finishing 1 John chapter 4. And this is kind of a part two from last time we were in this epistle by the Apostle John. What the Apostle is doing in these verses today repeats and further clarifies what he has already said. Let's look a little closer at how the Apostle John, by the work of the Holy Spirit, delivered these eternal truths to those he loved in the first century and to us today. So the topic of today's sermon, like last time, again, is Christian love, this time part two. Christian love, part two. And if we had a thesis for today's sermon, it would be, if we confess the true Christ, we are not only loved and adopted by the true God, but will also love all those he has adopted as well. And we will be so radically identified with Christ that we will have an unspeakable confidence because of the transformation that is wrought in us, which brings forth fruit. That is a general outline of today's message. Our identification in Christ, our confidence in Christ, our transformation by Christ, and then lastly, our obedience to Christ. So now that you have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 4, let us begin in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time once again in the epistle of 1 John. We ask now, Lord, that by your spirit you would move in our hearts not only to understand these truths, but to rest in them and to worship you in light of them and to trust even more in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. It's in his name that we pray. And we all say, Amen. Well, I had an illustration to begin this morning having to do with credit cards, but now it's going to be an illustration having to do with getting a flat tire. So, you get a flat tire, and what do you do? Well, you might be able to get out the jack yourself and fix your flat tire, or you may just be a member of AAA, and you may think, I'll give them a call. And so let's just say you went down that ladder path and you called AAA. What a blessing it is to have a company that's willing to come out to where you are and to help you and to do things that you might not otherwise be able to do or not want to do yourself. But when you finally get to that moment when you're calling AAA, the first thing that they're going to want to know is if you're a member. They're going to want to know if you actually have paid your membership dues. 
if you have any right to call them. Because if you're not a AAA member, AAA will say, we're sorry, we cannot help you. And then when AAA comes, you have confidence that they're going to help you. You have confidence that they're going to, maybe in this case, change your tire. And let's say AAA does a wonderful job and changes your tire. You are going to be moved to recommend AAA to somebody else to say, they helped me in my time of need. But you know what's better than calling AAA? Having Christian brothers who will come out quicker than AAA, probably do a better job than AAA. And how much more thankful I am that the body of Christ has demonstrated in a message dealing with Christian love uh, this attitude amongst our own congregation even this day. So brothers who helped me, thank you for getting me here to share this message. So let's look with that as a springboard into this topic today, what the Lord would have us hear from the Apostle John. And first is our identification, not with AAA, but our identification in Christ. And this is what we're going to read about first in this uh, entry verse here in verse 15. Verse 15, which says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Simply put, confessing the true Christ means we abide in God and he abides in us. John again is referencing, is referring to uh, the doctrine that he talked about last, about a test, a test of true Christianity. Who is Jesus? We talked about this in quite detail in previous messages. This is the most important question that any of us are going to have to answer, believers or unbelievers. Every image bearer of God will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for who Christ is. This test here that John is giving us is a repetition of what he has already taught in the beginning of, ch of the chapter when he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Before we get into the mechanics of this test again, to, un to unpack a little bit more of what is involved in this test of discerning the true Christ. I want to help you just in brief see a literary structure that John has put into this section that we're dealing with today. In fact, all of chapter 4 verses 7 through 21 finds itself to be what's called a chiastic structure. Now we talked about chiasms before. We talked about it in 1 John before. We talked about it in Daniel before. If you recall, a chiastic structure is a literary device which ends up repeating themes. It has a point A and often a point B and a point C. And then it has a central point. And then it works in reverse to repeat the same thing. A point C, a point B, and then a point A. And so if you were to graph this out, it would be like a V-shape, with the center of the V being the central point. This central point is what we're seeing in verse 15 through 16. Confessing Jesus and abiding in love means we abide in God and He in us. That's the central point. But you may have noticed as we're going through 1 John, this repetition of themes, this repetition of ideas, this repetition of doctrine. And again, a lot has to do with this in chapter 4 because there's a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure. Love one another as God has loved us. That is the whole structure of verses 7 through 21. But love of one another is tied to our love of God. That was point A. The essence of love, that God loved us and sent his son to save us, that was point B. Perfect love is to follow God's example of love. That was point C. Again, point D here is confessing Jesus and abiding in love means we abide in God and he in us. And now in reverse, the chiastic structure. Perfect love conquers fear of judgment. Point C. 
Point B, the essence of love. We love because he first loved us. And then back to point A, love of one another is tied to love of God. Now I want to thank Charles E. Hill for that chiastic diagram that we can find in a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament. But I want, what I want you to see is not so much to memorize the chiastic structure, but to see that the apostle is writing intentionally. And the Holy Spirit is moving him to write intentionally. Did you know that that chiastic structure was there? You may have just noticed repetition. But there's actually something deeper going on in the very words of Scripture. How often we miss the riches that are on the surface of the text. But these verses, verses 15 through 16, which is the center of this chiastic structure, correspond to verse 13 and 14 likewise, which is the center of this chiasm, the hinge upon which the whole argument turns. Remember verse 13? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has seen has sent the Son, rather, to be the Savior of the world. Do you see how that parallels the same idea in verses 15 through 16? In particular, in verse 13, when it says, We abide in Him and He in us. This is exactly what John is saying in 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And so I want to unpack by illustration this idea of us abiding in God and he in us. I believe it is very profound, in fact, more profound than we're even going to give credit to this morning. Because we can't. Because we're creatures. But please turn, if you're able, to John chapter 17. And I want to show you this idea and how it relates to what John is saying. So often we've gone back to John's gospel to further unpack what he's teaching in his epistle. It's the same author. Regardless of what higher criticism might say, this is the same author, the Apostle John, who wrote the gospel and who wrote this epistle. And so we can expect to see repeated ideas. And so we do. And where does John get these ideas to repeat in the first place? He gets them from the lips of Christ. John was the beloved disciple. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John wants to share that love with us. So now that you're open to John 17, I want to draw our attention to what's known as the high priestly prayer. Verses 1 through 12, Jesus prays for the disciples. He talks about in verses 13 to 21, the disciples that are in the world. And then later in verses 22 to 26, about their future glory. But what I want to draw your attention to is starting in verse 3. Listen to what Jesus prays. This is what he prays to the Father. And I believe the disciples heard him pray it. This is the setting of the Last Supper in that upper room where Jesus would wash the disciples' feet, put love into action. This is what Jesus says in verse 3 in his prayer. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This corresponds to John's epistle where we're reading now. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. You see, there are many things in the Gospels, in Scripture, that testify that Jesus is not just a great teacher, that Jesus is not just a prophet, but that he's much more than a great teacher, that he's much more than a prophet, that in fact he is eternal. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is Yahweh in flesh. And there may be things in the Gospels that we have seen that would be illustrative of this point. For instance, when Jesus forgives sins and everyone gets angry and says, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or it may be Jesus 
claiming that Abraham saw his glory and those who hate Jesus pick up stones to stone him. It may be Jesus calling God his father and his enemies recognizing that by doing so, he's making himself equal with God. It may be before the high priest in the mock interrogation that was unlawful even for the Jews on the night of Christ's betrayal, when they said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus goes to the book of Daniel and says, I'm much more than the Messiah. I am the son of man who is divine. And you will see me coming on the clouds. These examples might make us stop in our tracks and say, of course, he is God in the flesh. But how often do we miss all the times Jesus is called Lord? That is one of the most powerful examples that he is divine. But I would argue that this verse, verse 3 in John 17, is one of the strongest. Listen to it again. This is eternal life. This is what we're talking about. Eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Now, who's he, who's he praying to? Who's he talking to? It's the Father. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not praying to himself. He's not just a man. Praying to the one true God, and this identifies him as not being God. Far from it. This is eternal life that they may know you, Father, the one true God, and here it is, and Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not divine, if Jesus is not God, that is the most absurd statement that anybody could make. We've talked about over and over again how the new covenant is about knowing God. John has said in this epistle over and over again, whoever says they know God and hate their brother, they are a liar. The promise of the new covenant is that no one will say from henceforth, know the Lord, for they will all know me. This is eternal life. This is the key that opens the door of heaven. And Jesus is praying, Father, I know it doesn't just include knowing you. It includes knowing me. Again, who is Jesus? That is the most important answer or question we're all going to have to answer. Everyone is going to have to answer. And this is what I believe John has in mind. When he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. There are some that make the misappropriation of what the Son of God means. You may talk, and I've talked to many who are Roman Catholics, and they're squishy on the idea of the divinity of Christ. I'm not saying the Roman Catholic Church as an institution is. I'm saying that there are many Roman Catholics, just in my experience. And I'll say, did you know that Jesus is God? Do you believe that? No, 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 he's not God. He's the Son of God. Now, what they don't mean by that is he's not the Father, he's the Son. If they meant it that way, that would be fine. That would be orthodox. We believe that too. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And the Spirit is neither of them. There are three who stand in the divine essence. But I fear what they do mean is that he's not equal with the Father. He's not equal with the Father. He's not God in and of himself. He is the Son of God. And that is not what John is getting at here. And this is not what Jesus was praying to his Father. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him, and he in God. This confession of the true Christ is a gift. This confession of the true Christ was necessary in the first century, 
with those who had crept into the church teaching a counterfeit Christ, and it's necessary for us today. There are many who claim that they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in a Jesus that is equal with the Father. They don't believe in a Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. But further in this verse, we can illustrate some truths from John chapter 17. Just put your finger down to verse 8. Jesus prays, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. We'll stop right there. Who is the them that Jesus gave the words to? It is the apostles. It is the disciples. And Jesus goes on in verse 8, And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. You see, again, Jesus is saying to his Father, the disciples, the apostles, understand that I am not just a prophet. They understand that I'm not just some great teacher. Lord, they understand, again, against heresies that swirl today, that I'm not you, but rather I came from you. This is pre-existence language. This is eternal language. Jesus pre-existed his birth in Bethlehem. That little baby that was born existed before he was born in the flesh. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and became man. And as we talked about in previous messages, and he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. If that doesn't want to make you fall down and worship the second person of the Trinity, as we worship the whole Trinity, then I fear you do not know him. The second person in the Godhead, the Son of God, assumed flesh, became what he was not, and then became again sin for us. The mystery of that. And when I say he became sin, just for clarification, he took our sins upon himself. The spotless lamb of God became accursed for us. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. All of us here who trust in the Lord know that we're not worthy of that. And so when Jesus prays to the Father and they received them and truly understood, this is what John means in this verse in his epistle when he says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. You see, John is unpacking in this section of his epistle what he already has told us in his gospel, what he heard from the prayer of Jesus. The we is that apostolic we. We have come to know. And yes, even though there is an apostle confession in this verse, there is an application to all of us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus that we have come to know also. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That he sent his only begotten son into the world so that those of us who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But then comes the section which again we cannot even unpack in our flesh. It can only be unpacked fully by the Spirit who plumbs the depths of the mind of God. When Jesus says in verse 22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected, 
in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Oh, the riches that are packed into that simple statement by our Lord. And this is what John means when he says, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is where John got the language of God being in us and us in God. And it's in the context of Jesus praying that we would be in him as he is in the Father. Anybody who has studied Trinitarian doctrine knows the profound depth of the idea of the divine persons co-penetrating each other. The fancy theological term for this is perichoresis, where the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Spirit is in them both. And there is a co-indwelling of the persons in each person because they all share the same divine essence. Remember, brothers and sisters, God in many ways is not like us. There is a creator-creature distinction. And we dare not say that we become divine in the same way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are divine. But I will say that in a way that we can only begin to understand because of the words in Scripture, we can believe that we have become partakers of the divine nature because we have been told so. We can believe that God is in us and in some way this love that abides in God and that God abides in us is a reflection of this divine mystery of perichoresis. This is plainly what John said. Jesus prayed, I in them and you in me. And again, what an example of what we've talked about in the past, the inseparable operations of the Trinity, that it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We've learned about this from 1 John. This is the anointing that we have from him, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But Jesus says that it is him, I in them. Again, foolish words for a mere mortal to say. How can you be in somebody? But Jesus prayed that he would be in us as the Father is in him. This radical identification with Christ, in fact, this union with him, produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. It produces within us love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. It's an effective love, a love that brings forth fruit, a union that brings forth fruit, a radical identification which produces fruit. But what John wants to remind us of next is something that is desperately and soberly needed by everyone now and in that day which is coming for us all. And that brings us to the second point, our confidence in Christ. Point one was illustrating our radical identification with Christ. Being in Christ and he in us. But now we turn to our confidence in Christ. Turn back to 1 John chapter 4 and look at verse 17. Our confidence in Christ. Perfect love conquers fear. And judgment. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment 
because he, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The Apostle John is now reminding us of our unwavering confidence in Christ as it relates to our standing before his throne on that final day, judgment day. As the Apostle Paul teaches, everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Apostle has spoken of this before in chapter 2 where he said in verse 17, The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And then later in verse 28, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. But now John is explaining why we have no fear in judgment. And brothers and sisters, it's because of love. A perfect love which casts out fear. As we meditate on our radical identification with Christ, as we meditate on who Christ is, I pray that you got encouraged by the first point in this sermon. What confidence that we can have that we know him. This is somewhat illustrated when we talk about fear. Again, I can go back to the illustration of the tire because when you get a flat tire, there's an immediate idea of fear. Oh, what do I do? But even something like taking a test, and there's a fear because you fear judgment. You fear, what if I take this test and I don't know the answers? What if I take this test and I think I know the answers and I get it back with an F or a D? Or, for some of us, a C is just as bad as an F. May it never be. But we have fear because of the unknown. Maybe you're like me, and you fear getting a tooth pulled out. I won't go into that in detail, because my son may have to get a tooth pulled out in the near future. But you don't know. You go to the dentist, and you're saying to yourself, I hope that's not the conclusion. But brothers and sisters, because we know we are not ignorant of who Christ is. We're not ignorant of the promises that he's made to us that this fear is cast out. The most terrible fear of judgment that anyone is ever going to have to face is on the day that Jesus returns. And we who have put our faith in Christ, who know him, have no need to fear but it is the most fearful prospect for those who are outside of Christ. And you want to see pride on display? Tell that to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. They say, I'm not scared of that. I don't even believe in that. Brothers and sisters, when that day comes, when Jesus is revealed on the clouds of heaven, that pride is gone. In symbolic language, we hear of those who are unfaithful in the book of Revelation, calling for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne. That is a fearful day indeed. And what did John say in this epistle previously and now? We have no need to fear. By this, by knowing Christ, the true Christ, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. That's what he's saying. 
If you know the true Christ, if you confess the true Christ, which is a gift from the Father to you, because remember, nobody can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. If that is you, you have no need to fear in that day of judgment. And that does not stir up pride in us. That stirs up humility. And it'll stir up humility on that day. In fact, if there's anything that we're going to fear on that day, it is not God. It is the wrath that he is going to pour out on all of those who do not believe in him. And yet I praise the Lord that in his providence we will have glorified minds at that point. And in ways that we don't understand right now, we will be rejoicing even in the midst of that horror. Again, brothers and sisters, these things are too much for us. But Jesus told us this plainly again in his gospel in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Have you heard his word? Do you hear it? Have you been given ears to hear and eyes to see? Do you believe in the Christ of Scripture? Do you believe that the Father has sent him to be the Savior of the world? If you have, you have eternal life. Eternal life isn't something that we will have one day. Brothers and sisters, you have eternal life now. Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says, if you hear his words, believe that he was sent. You have eternal life now. And you do not come into judgment. And what he means by that is this judgment of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out. Why? Because you have already passed out of death into life. This is one of the testimonies of our baptisms. When we are buried with Christ in those waters, in the waters of judgment, and raised to life, Buried in death, raised in life. The judgment for your sins has already come. And they were laid on Christ. Again, what is the depth of the statement, He became sin for us, mean? Well, we know this much. It means that the judgment for your sin is paid. And this is why Paul will say in Romans, for you have received not a spirit of slavery leading to fear. Again. And the again means you had a spirit of fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is why when we're at death's doorstep, brothers and sisters, and we know that our time has come. And even if we're not granted that privilege, where our life is taken quickly, we can even say in our seats now, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not so. For the unbeliever. Because fear is the beginning of torment. And that torment will not go away for the unbeliever, even after judgment. Because that torment is an eternal torment. Pray for those you love. Pray for our children. Because that day is coming. And teach them 
as much as it depends on you, the way of escape that God has offered to all. And I trust that those of us who have this hope have already done so and will continue to do so. Why? Because of our transformation by Christ. That's point three. Look at verse 19 in 1 John 4. The apostle writes simply, we love because he first loved us. Again, this verse corresponds and repeats the truths from verse 9 through 10, where John said in this chiastic structure before, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The transformation that is wrought in us by the work of Christ, because he dwells in us by the Spirit, produces love. And it only produces love, and it is only in us, because he first loved us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and laid his life down for us. This is what John said again in John 17 in the prayer. If you're flipping back and forth, you can look there, but don't turn if you're not already there in verse 22, where Jesus prayed to the Father, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Again, this talk of us being included in this divine relationship, the glory that God has given to the Son is given to us? Again, this stokes the fires of confidence in us, or it should, brothers and sisters. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Jesus has said before, and we've, we've pointed it out, by this the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. Jesus prayed that the world may know that he sent, that, that God sent him and loved them, even as you have loved me, by this love. But we only do this, we only produce this fruit of love because he first loved us. This transformation is done by the Spirit of God in us by the new birth. Again, this is what we celebrate in baptism, that God has given this new life to another sinner who had every reason to fear the judgment that was going to come upon the world. We love because he first loved us. And what does this love produce? Fruit. It produces fruit. It produces good works. The good works that God has determined, that God has planned, that we should walk in. And that brings us to the last part of this section, our obedience to Christ. This love which produces fruit by the transforming power of the Spirit of Christ because we so are radically identified with him brings forth obedience to Christ. Verse 20 of John, 1 John 4. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. John is saying that this truth of transformation by confessing the true Christ and being in such a radical union with him will bring forth this fruit so confidently that he can say if someone says they love God and hates their brother, he's a liar. Because this work by the Spirit is effectual. There is a work that is done by the Spirit that cannot be suppressed. It is, it is possible to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But there is a work of the Spirit that cannot be suppressed. Whether it be the calling leading to your salvation, whether it be the repentance that accompanies your justification, whether it be your sanctification. All of this is the work of the Spirit. And we are confident in this, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. One last time in John chapter 17 corresponds to what John is saying here. Verse 25 O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Think about this, brothers and sisters. The love with which the Father loves the Son is the love that is put in you. What does that look like? It doesn't look like hating your brother. In fact, that's the opposite. And if somebody says that they have this love in them and they hate their brother... Per John's illustration, John says they're a liar. Because how can you love a God you do not see if you cannot love his children who you do see? It's a classic Jewish argument from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus said to Thomas on that day, when he appeared to the twelve, including him, Thomas, bring your finger over here to put your finger in the nail wounds and the scars that you said you needed to see, to believe. And when Thomas falls down at Jesus' feet and says, My Lord and my God, Jesus said, you believe now that you see? Blessed are all those who believe and do not see. And so it is in John's epistle, talking to those whom he loves in the early church. He knows that they love God, the God whom they have not seen. And yet he knows that there are those in the congregation who claim that they love God. And yet their fruit speaks of a different truth. So in conclusion, in this final section of John chapter 4, we have been privileged to learn of the Apostle John's compelling arguments for why followers of Jesus Christ love and practice love. We said at the beginning in part 1, it's impossible to overestimate love in the Christian life. 
I pray that you've seen that. One commentator highlights five reasons that I think tie up 1 John 4 and this idea of Christian love, this truth of Christian love, nicely. Five reasons. Why do Christians love? Number one, because God who indwells them is the essence of love. Number two, because they have an inward desire to imitate God. Number three, because love is the heart of the Christian witness. Number four, because love is the Christian's assurance. Number five, because love is the Christian's confidence in judgment. As I concluded last time, it is impossible, impossible to overestimate love in the Christian life. As Jesus foretold, it is our love one for another that will be the sign to all that we are his disciples. But what's more, it has been granted to be the natural direction of the heart of all those whom he has set his love upon. The virtue that we all desire, especially in our weakness, exemplified in Christ our Savior, who will not only love us to the end, but will take us to himself when our breath is no more. I ended last time with Isaac Watts, a devotion on meditations, number 240, and I'm going to do it again this day. Before we quite forsake this clay or leave this dark abode, the wings of love bear us away to see our smiling God. This is the grace that lives and sings when faith and hope shall cease. Tis this shall strike our joyful strings in the sweet realms of bliss. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this morning and the truths that you have given us today out of your word. We thank you for the love that you have showered upon us in Jesus Christ, your Son, sent from heaven, born of a virgin, born under the law, who was made sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, that we could become partakers in the divine nature, and by and through our love and the good works that you have prepared for us to walk in, that we would have confidence in the day that is coming for all image bearers, past, present, and future. Lord, kindle this joy and this confidence in our hearts now as we prepare for your table, as we prepare to be fed on the spiritual food that you have ordained for the increasing of our faith. Oh, Father, thank you for the faith that is even the size of a mustard seed. May it grow this morning through the ministry of the word, by the work of the Spirit in this supper. In Jesus' name, amen.